side. And then the science said, one time around, you want to hear what they're doing. But we decided that we should also you know, feature some uh, home talent uh, on a regular basis. So periodically, there'll be talking people within the department. And the first of these can be from Kristalina. So Kristalina Atlantis is somebody that, even if you knew nothing about her science at all, you probably know that. Because she's very active in the department. You know, in, in social terms, in getting people together, communicating, etc. So you will come across this I'm sure. But uh, she's going to talk to us about her work um, using eye movements and plasticity. So she is <coughs> her undergraduate in the United States and then went to Cambridge to do a PhD uh, on Huntington's and Parkinson's biomarkers for kind of And she's here now extending that work in Parkinson's uh, with eye movements and things. So over to you. Thank you. Right, thank you very much, Kevin, and thank you everyone for coming today to listen to my talk. So, um, what I was hoping to do for this talk is to tell you a little bit about the research I've been doing on eye movement abnormalities and also cognitive dysfunction in those patients that present with Parkinson's disease, both at the very early stages, but also as the disease progresses and these patients become quite advanced. So, I'm going to show you also some recent findings we've had from a small percentage of these patients that are selected to undergo a surgical procedure called the brain stimulation. And then I'm going to finish off by telling you about the exciting new study we've just launched uh, here in, in the department of National Department of Clinical Neurosciences. So um, just to set the scene, particularly for those of you who are not familiar with Parkinson's and, and the neurodegeneration sort of concept of it, Parkinson's along with Alzheimer's disease is one of the most commonest diseases um, uh, present now. And a number of, of cases sort of with Parkinson's are also presenting at earlier stages. And Parkinson's is classically defined by a pathology that targets the dopamine um, uh, cells in the nigra. And these cells acquire alpha-synuclein Lewy body pathology, which is what these sort of stains are here. So, one of the key questions that everyone working in Parkinson's asks is what causes Parkinson's disease? So I've just told you that there's a death of dopaminergic cells in the substantia nigra pars compacta, but in a very small percentage, there's a genetic factor which causes a familial uh, cause for Parkinson's. And in an even smaller percentage, there is an identifiable environmental factor, perhaps due to chemical exposure, and in the States, there is evidence that pesticide control, for example, using gardening, might have something to do with some types of Parkinson's. But the reality of this <coughs> is that we don't really know what causes Parkinson's, and that's why we're getting into this, uh, into this line of research in the first place. So we most often hear about Parkinson's um, in terms of its motor symptoms. And unfortunately, Parkinsonian patients have motor symptoms that are both progressive and disabling. And this includes things like slowness of movement, like body kinesia, stiffness and rigidity, both of the upper limbs, so hands and arms, and also of the lower body, of uh, the legs and feet. Problems like instability and fault, but also what you see as my last point here, the loss of facial expression that we often refer to as the Parkinsonian mask. But this is not the whole story. Parkinson's also has a, a hidden version that in recent years we've all become quite aware of it and we're quite curious about it, the non-motor aspects. And this includes things like loss of sense of smell, problems with your sleep, 
um, constipation, depression, anxiety, and a range of different cognitive problems. So this is exactly what we are particularly keen on to look at, especially because these sort of symptoms present during the pre-symptomatic um, period before a patient is told that they do have the motoric aspect of Parkinson's, if you like. So one might wonder, how do we actually uh, measure this disorder? So in neurology, what usually um, is, is done is using a number of clinical rating scales. And by that I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with sort of the clinical aspects of things, is uh, a range of questionnaires. And one of the um, sort of standard, gold standard that is used is something called UPDRS, which starts for Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. This consists of a number of questions, things like moving your uh, fingers, uh, tapping your toes, and so on. But as you can imagine, this is sort of a quite wide range of modalities that we're testing uh, and functions on a patient. So by nature, this is subjective and non-linear, and therefore it's not very um, easy to use it when we want to A, accurately diagnose the Parkinsonian patient, and B, follow the progression of this patient. So if someone would ask me what would I like to use and what will be the fantastic biomarker to develop in the next few years, well, I would say that it will be something that is objective, something that is easily measurable, and something that is preferably quantifiable and numerical. So that's why I, uh, when I started my PhD in Cambridge, I was quite fascinated by the world of eye movements because we can measure eye movements in a very quantitative way, but also in a very non-invasive way, if you like, and get a, a good idea of what's happening in our brains. So let me just start by telling you that um, we do know how we look at the visual scene. For example, if you look at this picture here, we only see a very small part of it at once. And in order to see the whole thing, the whole picture that you're looking on the screens there, we need to shift our gaze from point to point to take all of the relevant information. For example, this is how much you're all looking in at the moment. And what happens is that you're shifting your gaze from point to point. These are my eye movements, OK? I reported them the other day. And I'm particularly interested in the architecture of this picture. And that's why I'm focusing on the points that you see here. Someone else could be moving their eyes in a slightly different way. But we have a very <coughs> accurate way of measuring this. These fast conjugate eye movements are the most common type of eye movements that we all make in our living lives. You're all making them at the moment. You're all looking at me and looking at the screen, looking at your sandwiches or your nose. You're all making what we call the saccadic eye movements. So um, this is exactly what uh, I decided to start looking when I was back in Cambridge. And the reason why I chose <coughs> Parkinson's disease with eye movements is because as these patients become more advanced, sometimes it is possible to bring out these abnormalities um, by clinical examination. Not always the case. So I want you to look at this first patient here. We're asking the patient to fixate in front of me, looking at my pen, okay? Look what happens with this patient. So the, the eye should be kept completely still, but what's happening here is that it's disrupted by these square wave jerks, these horizontal small saccadic intrusions. Let me play that again. So the eye should be kept completely still. So if you want to check each other, your eye should be kept completely still. At advanced stages, these Parkinsonian patients 
are exhibiting the square wave jerks that again, if you're not trained, you might not be able to pick it up and bring it out in some of your patients. The second sort of abnormality we have as well is hypometria or horizontal and vertical saccades. Let me just show you what I mean by looking at this patient. So some of you might pick up the abnormality, some of you might not. So what we're asking this individual to do is to make accurate saccades looking at two stationary targets, pen and camera, and these are absolutely fine. Now what we're asking him to do is that we want him to generate, self-generate between two stationary targets. But what you see is that it's becoming broken and also he's not reaching the whole range that we're asking him. So some of you might think, well I can't see the difference. And some of you might say, well I can't see the difference. And that's the problem when we're trying to measure very accurately these, um, these saccadic abnormalities in our Parkinson's patients. So for the studies I'm going to tell you now, we've used a range of different oscillometers, both in the lab and also the ones that I'm showing you here that we can take to our clinics. This is what we call the saccadometer. It has an elastic band that fits around the head. It has three lasers that are projected either on the blank screen in our lab or in the clinic um, in our wall. And underneath here on the nose bridge that rests quite comfortably to our patients, um, you have two infrared cameras. And these infrared cameras are coming down to something of the size of my iPhone, and I can see exactly if that patient is recording, what the latency, the duration, and the peak saccadic velocity, so how quickly that movement is happening. This is quite good, especially for patients who do have head tremor, and they find it really difficult when you're trying to sort of strain the, the, their head within a sort of fixed cage, if you like. So let me just show you, if you want to ever do eye movements in the clinic, it's easily done with this sort of portable equipment. So this is David, he's one of our early patients. And what you see here, this is one of the neuroscience uh, outpatients up on level three. This is, um, this is the saccadometer that is fitted really um, easily on the forehead. And what you can see here is my monitor. On the right hand side, I'm projecting this on the wall on the far side. And we can easily do this in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. We can get about 300 recordings from this patient, which is quite a lot when you're looking at sort of the individual data. So I thought it would be good to show you um, what a test feels like if you've never done an eye movement test. Usually we, we do simple tests like a reflexive eye movement test where we ask for the patient to follow a line from side to side, okay? What I'd like you to do now is something a little bit more difficult. I want you to sit back, relax, focus on the red dot, and I want you to move your eyes to the opposite direction from where the dot is. So if it's on the right, go to the left. If it's on the left, go to the right. And try to come back in the, at the center if you can. Right, it's very interesting. I wish every time I asked people to do this, I would be able to record what your eyes are doing. Some of you were struggling at the beginning, and I think people lose a little bit of attention trying to move their eyes to the opposite direction. But what happens is that after a few seconds, after a few milliseconds, you, you start getting these synchronicities between participants, and everybody starts to move their eyes with a slightly different rate, but with a, a similar idea, if you see what I mean. 
So this is a type of task I will be referring to as an anti-saccharic task, okay? Which I'll be talking to you now, some of the studies that we've carried out. So this is a study we've carried out last year, a year here in, in Oxford, and we have used um, acanetic rigid Parkinsonian patients, and this is the type of Parkinson that is more common with uh, aging, so uh, increasing age tends to to uh, relate more with uh, our Parkinsonian patients, along with cognitive impairment. And for this study, we test tested a group of de novo, so these Parkinsonian patients have never taken any Parkinsonian drugs up to this point of, of the testing. And we also tested a group of healthy controls, which by definition they were their spouses that were entering the study. So, what we asked them to do was a variant of the task that you have just performed as well, the antipsychotic task. Along the antipsychotic task, though, we also used a range of different uh, cognitive tasks. This was in collaboration with the late Professor Glyn Carfries of experimental psychology. So Glyn was originally designing this as part of the Oxford cognitive screen down at experimental psychology here in Oxford. Um, particularly for his stroke patients. And when we first got together and we started talking about how can we adjust and adapt this, um, this task to our Parkinson's patients, it became apparent that some of these tasks would actually um, uh, capture some of the cognitive dysfunction that we were trying to uh, at that particular time point. So the tasks I'm showing you here are pen and paper, okay? So what we ask them to do, for example, here, this is what we call the trails task. We um, <coughs> differentiated this a little bit from the typical trace task that you might be um, sort of aware of, which you have letters and numbers and you sort of go on in ascending order. And what you see here is that one subject could be asked to go from the larger circle to the smaller circle. This one here, the subject would be asked to go from the largest triangle to the smallest triangle. And then a mixture of the two, which even healthy controls we find it quite difficult to do, is go from the largest triangle to the next smallest circle and so on, which requires this task switching and, and, and um, rule finding within your head to figure out which direction the sizes <coughs> of the different shapes are happening. But the beauty of this, I find, is that um, we are looking at how much performance suffers as, um, as a rule gets more complicated, if you like, and you don't really need to speak English or any other language, you can really do it because you're judging these on the shapes that you see here. Um, in a gist, what we found is that our Parkinsonian patients, newly diagnosed, never taken any Parkinsonian medication, um, had very mu with very mild symptoms, performed much worse than our healthy controls. What you see here on the left-hand side, these are their reflexive eye movements, which is moving and following a dot. And the Parkinsonian patient <coughs> looks exactly the same as the healthy controls. I expected this from my previous studies in Cambridge. I didn't expect this to be different. What was interesting, though, is that their antipsychotic error rate was definitely higher and significantly different with the healthy controls. And at this very early stage, previously, we had studied a group of early uh, Parkinsonian patients, but they were not de novo. They were taking Lizodopa. And therefore, a number of the studies previously have, have asked, well, do we think it's the medication that is driving this antipsychotic error rate? And now here we proved uh, that it wasn't the medication that was uh, bringing out these oculomotor abnormalities, if you like. 
Also on the bottom here, the, uh, the black bars are Parkinson's patients, the grey ones are um, healthy controls. And what you see here is that uh, the Parkinsonian patients were unable to find some of the rules we were asking them, and also they were unable to make this switch to go from one size of one shape to the next size of the other shape and so on. They were just not capable of maintaining that in their working memory and carrying it through to finish uh, the tablet, which again was very interesting to our patients themselves. So don't forget, these are people who have just been diagnosed with Parkinson's. It almost like hits you out of nowhere that you have this disorder, but you're not aware that you might be having some sort of more higher cognitive problem as opposed to the tremor and everything else uh, that could be happening to them. So what we've done in the last year, um, and um, uh, while Glyn uh, was still alive, uh, we managed to put everything on an electronic tablet and we managed to choose three particular tasks that we think are going to bring out some of the um, abnormalities and the dysfunction we're looking uh, in the, in the um, uh, new study I'm going to tell you about at the end. So the trail-making task, the Brixton test of spatial anticipation, and the cancellation task. And because this might mean nothing to you, I thought I'll just show you some videos, okay, to see what actually patients do. So this is the trail-making test. I've shown you the previous version with the pen and paper. But have a look. This is a healthy control. Actually, it's one of our students. I don't think she's in the audience. But um, it, it's showing you how she can do a very simple task going from the smallest circle to the larger circle and we have every single parameter where they touch, the projectile, the reaction time and we have all of this in a numerical form as opposed to myself asking and rating them how things they're doing. The second one here is the opposite, you go from the largest one to the smallest one. Most patients can do this quite quickly and well. But the complex tasks are this um, sort of sweet, uh, tasks uh, switching. What you have to do here, you have to go from one shape to the other shape at uh, descending order. And, and remember that you have to do that. I can see some of you in the audience thinking, I couldn't probably do that either. <laughs> what happens is that you, you get used to it, okay? So after the second or third time, it might give you one prompt and correct you, but then you, you, your brain sort of says, right, okay, it's one shape, the other shape, one side, the other shape. You should be able to sort of complete it accurately. The second task is this rule finding. So we've changed this with Glyn and uh, Nili Demayer and Mihaela Dutta, who is our software engineer and has been brilliant in helping us develop this the last few months. What you see here is a red dot that moves randomly. It's based on a preset rules that we've set together. And the patient has to predict where the dot is going. And again, I'm not going to tell you in case you decide to come and have a go, um, but there are a number of rules behind these that you are not able to predict every single move correctly, but you have to adjust to it. It's almost like doing all these online games, that you have, your brain needs to adjust to the new rule that we're telling you without telling you what the new rule is, okay, by looking at it and following at it. And the last one is this cancellation task. So what happens here, let me just show you the videos, on the left hand side, we ask the patient to select the fruits. So again, it's a touch pad, so she touched the fruits. This is a student again, so she's doing really well. Um, and what you see is that every time that you touch each fruit, it's been highlighted with this visual cue, this, uh, this rectangle around. So that stays within the sort of working memory for 10, 15 seconds. What happens though, 
is that even at the early stages, we're finding that our patients, when we ask them to again follow the same pattern, choose the fruit, but without having the visual cue, let me just play this again, because it disappears, they start well, and then they start becoming worse, forgetting A, where they were, and B, which fruits they touch. And that's particularly interesting, because up to now, we haven't had a, a very precise, accurate, numerical way of quantifying what, when does this happen, how long into this, uh, this process do these patients fail to, to notice what's going on. So we're quite excited about taking this forward with the study we're, we're currently doing. So I've told you a little bit about the, the newly diagnosed, sort of the early stage, which is one side of the spectrum, but let's not forget about those patients that have had Parkinson's for 10, 15 years, and a very small percentage of them are chosen to undergo <coughs> this procedure here called deep brain stimulation. So what happened here is that um, electrodes are placed on each side of the basal ganglia, so you can see to insert it here. This is a stereotactic frame, is what happens in theater. And you can then view them uh, with the, the different contexts here that you can use to stimulate them. The reason why I was so fascinated by this and wanted to see if I can use uh, my hypothesis and the eye movement task that I was developing back in Cambridge is because of the, um, of the relationship that the, one of the nuclei that is being planted, where the, the neurosurgeons implant the electrodes, the subthalamic nucleus, uh, shares with a very important uh, area, uh, the superior colliculus, which is absolutely pertinent for the generation of saccadic eye movement. So if anything goes wrong down here in the STN, your superior colliculus could be changing not only how the, the, the saccadic eye movements are generated, but also what the latencies are, what their peak saccadic velocities are, and also the whole pattern and the shape, the trajectory of these eye movements. So, Recently, um, Paul Mayhew Archer, who is one, um, who's a BBC scriptwriter actually, I think he wrote the Victory of Dibley, if any of you know him, um, he decided to do, who has Parkinson's at the very early stages and he's been quite public about it and has given me permission to show you this today, has done a BBC documentary along with other research here that's happening uh, in the department. One of the things he showed is exactly what happens to one of these patients when you switch them on and off. And I just wanted, I clicked the, this to just show you what happens when this sti the stimulator is switched off and this tremor of, of John, our patient here, comes back on. John, John actually in hospital in Oxford when the deep brain stimulating device thing was put in. You can switch it. Yes. I certainly can, yeah. Okay. So the stimulator now is switched off. You can see the little place the here. Camera, as you can see. I think that's enough. We'll put it back on. Stretch your arm out. And you can see. Almost straight. And now the stimulator is being oh. switched on that from here. Absolutely astonishing. Fantastic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it goes without saying that the difference between if it works well and when it works well, the difference between before and after and how these patients can get back at least their quality of life. And I think at this stage it's important to say that DPS won't treat Parkinson's, it's not a cure for Parkinson's, and it won't retard the disease progression, but it will give this gentleman the opportunity to go back to work 
have a cup of coffee and enjoy his life that he couldn't be beforehand because of his tremor. So let me tell you quickly about one of the studies we did when I was back in Cambridge at Addenbrooke's Hospital. We followed 10 Parkinsonian patients, three female and seven male, and um, these patients were having bilateral implantation of the subthalamic nucleus, and they were chosen to undergo uh, deep brain stimulation. So I decided to follow them at four time points, the day before the implantation, when they were coming into um, the hospital. Within 24 hours, they were still in the hospital because they were being treated before they were um, released to go home. And then three weeks later, before and after, the switch on of the stimulation happened. And to my surprise, I wasn't actually expecting these results, to be honest with you, because we didn't know what the stimulation does to this particular task that we were looking at. And this was a prosaccharic task with different, different, a different variant with a different gap that I won't go into the details. But what I was, I was hoping to see here is what happens when you insert something into your brain and what will my eye movements tell me what, what actually is the problem and is that solved if it's left long enough. So what you see here on the y-axis is the median saccadic latency. In, in simple terms, is the reaction time of your eye movement. And these are the four time points. So this is the day before the operation, around 260. And what you see here, the reaction times of, of, uh, of the patients here um, is becoming much worse. And this is because you have an electrode inserted in a bit of your brain. You could have some sort of a lesioning effect, what they usually refer to as the stun effect. Interesting, three weeks after, when I saw these patients, when they came back to have their simulator switched on, their, um, their eye movements went back to before the operation. It was almost as if they didn't have an electrode inserted into their brain. Now, in Oxford, we've been doing studies, and we, we have shown that after 72 hours, um, this actually takes place. So you don't need three weeks to, to wait till you come back to normal. Between 72 hours, approximately that, they, 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 do, they do get back to normal, if you like, before their implantation. An hour after the stimulator was switched on, their eye movements were even better. And not only their motoric aspect, so what you've just seen John having the stimulator switched on and switched off was better, but also their median latency was much better. So we thought, brilliant, okay, how, how can we explain this? So these changes in the median latency, it, it was sort of one of the first times we could actually show that besides this qualitative difference, there's also a quantitative difference. So you can quantify the lesion effect and the insertion, sort of the simulation effect. But that wasn't enough really because we needed to take it a step further and see what happens to these patients sort of afterwards, months and years when we follow them. Unfortunately, I moved from Cambridge then, so we sort of left that there, but we're carrying out new studies here that I'll tell you in a moment. And the, the, the thing that interests me most is this mechanism of deep brain stimulation. There's a whole fight about it. So any of you in the audience that are working in this area, you know that we agree and disagree of what works and what doesn't work. But what this demonstrated to us at least is that it's simply not producing a blockade of what was uh, at that point being assumed from some of the animal literature, uh, particularly in the States. And for those of you that usually are asked about what are the criteria for deep brain stimulation, there has to be a definite diagnosis for um, uh, Parkinson's responsive to levodopa, and the motor symptoms need to be severe enough to severely compromise the, the sort of function of this individual. And of course, they have to be fit for surgery. 
Right, so let's come back now to, to Oxford, where last year we carried out um, another study with the C-brain stimulation patients. And um, we wanted to, to use an antipsychotic task. So a task similar to what I showed you earlier with sort of the different dots moving away from, uh, from the light. And what we wanted to see is um, to examine the following. We know that dopaminergic, dopamine medication alleviates things that are simple. Things, for example, like tremor, rigidity, and stiffness. But patients don't only have these problems. They have problems with inhibition of movement, with decision-making, um, with initiating a movement. So the dopaminergic medication doesn't necessarily treat these type of symptoms. So one has to go back and think, and I'm going to say this in very late terms, how the brain and the motor circuits are sort of um, uh, arranged. And in order to understand this, if we have a look at the several circuits that deal with different aspects of movement, for example, if you look at this red one here, this is responsible for the motor or oculomotor ones. And this is usually, again, in general terms I'm talking here, is responsible for the more reflexive and simple movements that we all make during our everyday lives. If you have a look at this blue circuit here, the prefrontal loop, this loop is thought to be more responsible for more complex tasks and the higher order cognitive tasks. And in order for this information, for information in this prefrontal loop to be transferred into this uh, loop here, into the motor or the oculomotor loop, there needs to be some sort of um, communication between the two. And this happens in the striatum here. But what we know from Parkinson's is that because of the lack of dopamine, the nerve cells are firing randomly. And therefore, this information gets disrupted somewhere in here. What we did with this study, we, um, we looked at uh, a group of uh, Parkinsonian patients. These were advanced patients. They were being treated, again, as you've seen in the movie earlier, for, um, for their Parkinson's, for different motor symptoms they had. A subgroup had DBS in the subthalamic nucleus, and another subgroup had DBS in the globus pallidus interna, that I'm going to be referring to as GPI. And then we also tested their spouses, which was the healthy control um, uh, sort of group. And what, what we found was particularly sort of puzzling to us, because both STN of DBS and GPI seem to reduce the brosarcadic latency. And let me just go through uh, this graph very quickly. On the left-hand side, these are all prosecas. So these are reflexive eye movements, what we're all doing, looking and following the light that I'm shining around. On the right-hand side, these are the antisecas, the task that you performed um, a few minutes ago. This is a control. This is one patient when the stimulator <coughs> was switched off, and then the same patient when the stimulator was switched on, and then another patient at the fourth day. So with the stimulator switched off and the <coughs> stimulator switched on. And what was particularly interesting is that only when the stimulation, or when the, the electrodes were placed in the GPI, we saw this decrease of antipsychotic error rate. And, and just to, to simplify things a little bit here, anything above zero here, they're correct movements. Anything below zero, they're errors that these patients were doing. So what you see here is that the STN, they're making lots of errors. We can see them here still making lots of errors uh, here when the simulator is switched on. 
What happens now is that with the GPI, when we switched on the stimulator, look at how many fewer errors they're making compared to previously. Sorry, this is not working very well. But I, I thought this was particularly puzzling because we never tested GPI patients. And these errors here significantly decreased here, which was really, really nice to see. But what, what is happening here? Um, and, and if you look at the uh, sort of overall um, antipsychotic error rate, you can see that the, um, the STN patients here are performing um, a different number of what the GPIs are, and there's a sort of um, reduces antipsychotic error rate, if you like. So I've told you about the idea of having this information being transferred into this, from this loop to this loop, and we think this is happening in the striatum because of this lack of dopaminergic cells. So we thought we need to come up with some sort of hypothesis why this is happening. And uh, we, we wanted to also decide, does this have a role in things like freezing of gait? So a number of our patients are standing still, and I ask them, can you start walking for me if I want to test their gait? And they're just unable to initiate a movement. Or while they're talking, and we ask them to turn or go through um, a, a door or, or some, some sort of small space, they tend to just freeze and are unable to move. And when you ask them, why can you not move, they say, we know we want to move, but we just cannot send that signal to that part of our body to start moving. And it's particularly frustrating, especially if you're trying to run somewhere or go somewhere or if they're having sort of a task to do. Speech problems, uh, we didn't know whether this, this, this could be something that you know, could be explained by what we're seeing here, but also mild cognitive impairment. So given that we think that noise is um, in the striatum is a key problem, we need to provide a hypothesis about how the stimulation of the GPI reduces this sort of noise. So data from animal studies um, have shown that uh, GPI stimulation can cause retrograde um, uh, firing of striatopoidal fibers that you can see here. And we suggested that this may result in the widespread sort of release of GABA from collaterals in the striatum, resulting in an overall sort of decrease in this firing rate. Of course, this is a hypothesis, so we are working on it and we're carrying out studies uh, to, to follow this up because obviously there is a, a significant decrease of this uh, error rate, and of course, we, we need to uh, examine this a little bit more with this particular patient since we have access to areas like GPI and NSTN, which we're quite lucky to because not, not all centers have, have this opportunity. Right, I'll leave that there, and I'm just going to um, take a few minutes just to tell you about the new study we've just launched, the OxQuip study. <coughs> this starts for the Oxford study of quantification in Parkinsonism, and it's a longitudinal study of neurophysiological and cognitive performance in both Parkinson's patients and something called progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a form of um, PD lookalike, if you like, um, um, uh, disorder. And uh, the problem with PSP is that these patients usually present at the, at the beginning looking like they've got Parkinson's, and a few years in, they start having falls backwards and problems with their vertical gaze, uh, they've got vertical gaze palsy. And by that time, they have around six years from what the literature suggests of uh, a life expectancy. So you can imagine it's a very, uh, it's a very horrible disease to get. 
Um, with Parkinson's, we are recruiting people from the very early stages to the very advanced stages, including people who are undergoing deep brain stimulation here in Oxford. What we want to do with them is see them every three months, so it's quite a, quite a, um, a big sort of commitment from our patients, and we're delighted to see that they're, they're happy to come, and we want to follow them for the next two years. And the aim for this is to find physiological correlates of progression over the time scale of the three to six months to begin with. Uh, we're funded by UCB, and this is um, one of the UCB-Oxford collaborations that exist here in, in Oxford. And you might wonder, you might ask me, why do you want to do this, and how exactly are you doing this? What kind of data are you getting in the next two years? So one of the primary things that I'm always asked is, how can you tell us, how can you find an early signal? There are three routes to better measures. Uh, first of all, the, the tests have to be sensitive, and they have to give us a bigger signal. They have to be objective. So the variability needs to be reduced, so you have less noise in your data, and therefore the data analysis that you're doing is a little bit more robust. And also it needs to be linear, so more powerful stats can be used to differentiate uh, between the two. So let me just tell you a little bit about the domains we are testing. Uh, I've told you about eye movements, we're continuing with eye movement quantification, and we're using a number of other tasks uh, in this study. We're using hand tapping, so it's touch sensors, and everything that the, the patients are tapping is being recorded again on small micro monitors that we can then transfer wirelessly on our computers. This is particularly exciting because we're trying to digitize the clinical rating scale that I've told you. Um, it's a device called Kinesia, and I think in the next couple of slides I'll show you what it looks like. It's a small accelerometer. And while we're doing the clinical rating scale, so while we're asking them the various questions during the clinical examination, there is a, a little accelerometer that is fitted on the finger, on one side, then on the other side, and then on the legs. And all the information of all the movements and all the road traces are being transferred wirelessly back to our computers. Therefore, we have some idea of quantification and numbers um, of, of what's happening. Also, we're using the cognitive tablet. I'll tell you a little bit about this. We've got the final version uh, with um, Glenn Humphreys groups in experimental psychology. And we're also looking at gait. And I'll show you the sensors and the data in a couple of minutes. Um, one of the things that people always also ask when you're trying to get funding uh, in our days is about drug evaluation. So a number of pharmaceutical companies have always asked me, uh, you know, can any of the biomarkers that you're developing or your colleagues are developing capture what's going on in the different drugs that our patients are taking? So the, the reality of this, what I've learned the last year, is that a minority of drugs make it to the market from where they start sort of in phase one to a final preclinical and then clinical phase. The development and trialing consumes huge amounts of money. It's unbelievable the amount of money that one could spend on getting this to the market and then failing. And the, the question that we are asked to evaluate as part of our longitudinal study is whether we can kill off research into doing drugs quicker to divert the time and money to the next target, really. And that's quite exciting for us as well, because if some of these markers are not showing the signal we wanted to show, we can stop at an earlier stage and then rethink what else we could be doing, or why is that signal not showing us what, um, 
uh, what we're particularly interested in. And I've already told you about how the clinical rating scales are subjective, and let's not forget that there is inter-observer or inter-rater variability. So I could be doing the UPRS, a colleague of mine next door could be doing it, and we could all be putting slightly different numbers, which always sort of frustrates us, but unfortunately, that's, that, that's the nature of these things. I've also um, told you about uh, the eye movements that we have, and what the traces we're receiving now with this new equipment that we have is that we have full cytokinetic traces, and also these are time stamps, and therefore we can quantify them precisely. And uh, just to show you the movement sensors we have here, this is Jim, one of our patients who's been very kind in helping us promoting some of our work we've been doing here. So what you see here is this Kinesia device. So this is simply an accelerometer. And every time the patient is doing any sort of movement, he's attached to an accelerometer on, on either the right left hand and then right and, and left uh, leg, and it's been transmitted wirelessly to our sort of hub we've got, and we can see exactly how big the movement is being made, how quickly the patient is walking, and also what the stride, sort of the, the, the movement of the leg and the body and the coordination of that. Most interestingly for me is this gait analysis we're doing, because I'm particularly interested in comparing and contrasting the gait abnormalities with the eye movement abnormalities. And what you see here is another uh, kit that we're using. Uh, these are opal sensors. There are six on the body, so they have one on each uh, hand, one on each leg, on foot. They've got one at their lumbar, so we can catch any backward falls or any swaying of any sort. But also we have one on the trunk. So any sort of movement that this patient could be doing that's very, very minor, and we're unable to see, we're able to capture it. And I'm just showing you, this is from yesterday's clinics actually, that we did with uh, Megan and Joy. So what you see here is, um, uh, I think I have the accelerometer and the gyroscope. These are three axes, accelerometer, gyroscope. And we also have, I didn't put it because it would be very, very messy, uh, graph here, we've got the gyroscope again, three axes. And what you see here is the lumbar component. We have one for the lumbar and one signal, well, uh, nine signals uh, from each recording, showing exactly what the rhythmicity of this person was walking basically two meters. So asking them to start from the beginning of the, sort of the start of the clinic group till the other side and come back. And therefore we can see the rotation, how quickly they can adjust, if they do have freezing of gait, are they, are they sort of overcoming it in a particular way? What angle their foot is sort of pointing? So um, we're currently sort of trying to figure out how we're going to analyze all of this data because you get a lot more data than you can handle. So I'll leave you this, and I'm, just, I'm not going to go through everybody uh, about acknowledgments, but when I was back in Cambridge, Roger Carpenter and Roger Barker, Colin Watts, and the neurosurgical department were fantastic in accommodating me and helping me with all my studies. The hardware and the software for eye movement recordings um, is a group um, called the OBERS, which provides the saccharometer, have been fantastic. We've been working together to develop oculometers that can fit with our patient needs, which is important, otherwise we can't really measure these in clinic if we can't bring them to the lab. Also in Oxford, um, Chris Kennard, Michelle Hugh, and the whole neurosurgical department I want to thank Glyn um, and his group because they, they sort of set me up with all the cognitive work we've been doing here. And Nili and Mihaela are now taking over 
the studies we're doing have been fantastic in, in accommodating us and bringing this into the cognitive tablet that we can use in the clinic and our new research trial. And also my funding, which currently UCB has been outstanding in, in helping us settle up this up and, and following it as a longitudinal study. And I can't, I can't finish this uh, presentation without thanking the patient, because without the patients, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have any of these recordings, and particularly the Oxford Parkinson's branch, who have been outstanding in helping us, supporting us, and giving us their time in everything we do. Thank you very much.